Welcome to the Texas Power Podcast from Renewable Energy World. I'm Doug Lewin, president of Stoic Energy and host of the Texas Power Podcast. Today, you're in for a treat. Our guest was Barry Smitherman. There are few people in Texas that know more about energy and have been involved in so many different aspects of energy in Texas. He's the only person in the history of the state that has been both chairman of the Public Utility Commission and of the Railroad Commission. And for the uninitiated, the Railroad Commission has nothing to do with railroads these days. It is the regulator of oil and gas. We had a great and far-reaching discussion. Uh, We started, of course, by talking about Winter Storm Uri. We talked a lot about how Texas's competitive market evolved over the years, bringing us right up to the present day market redesign. We also dived into his work with the Texas Geothermal Alliance, where he is president and chairman, and talked about the vast potential of geothermal power for the state of Texas. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation. I hope you will as well. Thank you for listening. Barry Smitherman, thanks for joining the Texas Power Podcast. Glad to be here, Doug. Thanks for the invitation. Awesome. Really appreciate you taking time. So uh, I, I want to start just with, I think a lot of the folks listening to the to the podcast will know who you are and, and know your history, but there's also a lot more people these these days interested in energy and, and power grids and, and all these kinds of issues, ERCOT particularly. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, just tell us just briefly some of your um, really deep experience in this space and, and uh, what, what you've done in the past. Great. Well, I appreciate that. I came to the Public Utility Commission in April of 2004 after a 16-year career in the investment banking world. So uh, as as an active participant on Wall Street in the fixed income groups of J.P. Morgan and First Boston and Bank One, I segued to public service in, uh, in the early part of transitioning our market design from the old fully regulated monopoly, 100-year-old rate-regulated utilities uh, to what we now know as the ERCOT market, where we have generation, wires and poles, and retail. And uh, it was interesting because I didn't know anything about the Public Utility Commission before Governor Perry appointed me to the commission and, and I get there and I then discover where we are. We're two years into DREG and all the challenges associated with that. So I served uh, a little over seven years at the PUC, the last four as chairman, uh, and then left there one morning and that afternoon was sworn in at the Texas Railroad Commission uh, during a period of time when horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing techniques were being refined and and suddenly the railroad commission went from permitting 900 wells a year to 24,000 wells my last year on the commission which was 2014 since that time i have uh, i've served on the board of of NRG i am currently on the board of Centerpoint i've done some consulting and uh, presently, I'm the chairman of the Texas Geothermal Energy Alliance. I also teach at UT Law School. I teach a class called Texas Energy Law, which I designed, which touches on all of these 
things that we're going to talk about today. If you are a UT uh, law student, uh, sign up for uh, Chairman Smitherman's class. You will not be disappointed. Um, I kind of want to come audit your class. You might have us sit in the back a couple times. Happy to have you. Come on. <laughs> All right. Um, so I think where where we where we need to go next is obviously um, what was you know outside of even energy, just historically speaking, in, in for the state of Texas, um, you know one of the one of the major events in in, in Texas history, uh, Winter Storm Uri. Um, can you talk a little bit? I mean, you you're uh, I was going to say a very rare person, or you might be the only person that's been. Uh, Public Utility Commission and Railroad Commission chair. I mean, so you you have a perspective on this that not only few people have, but maybe nobody else has, having having regulated both the power side and and the gas side. Can you talk a little bit about what happened there, and from from your vantage point, experience, and perspective, um, what went wrong, and and. What are the things we're doing well to make sure it doesn't happen again? And where where do we need to continue to keep the focus to make sure it never happens again? Right. Well, this was the worst weather-related reliability event that we ever had. And the one we had preceding that was 10 years earlier in February of 2011. And in fact, I was chairman of the PUC at that point in time. And I vividly remember uh, that happening. It was Again, it was very cold. The difference is uh, we only lost power for seven hours in 2011. And in 2021, it was 70 hours. So it was 10 times the magnitude of what happened 10 years earlier. And let's be honest, it was incredibly cold. Uh, in February of 2021, if you'll look at uh, ERCOT's work in advance of that Valentine's Day, which was a Sunday night, they were sending out warnings, cold weather coming, get ready. They had been doing that actually for a number of days. But I'm not sure anyone, Doug, predicted that it would be in the single digits here in the Austin area, uh, close to zero in the Dallas area, in the teens, in the Houston area for a prolonged period of time. And uh, we had here where I live, uh, west of Austin, we had eight inches of snow. I've never seen that in my lifetime. Uh, I have a pond that's about a half an acre, and you could walk across it. It was frozen solid, probably eight inches of ice. And the weather remained that way for almost five days. And so it was an unprecedented weather event all throughout the central part of the United States. Now, um, people have liked to point to wind or other resources as having failed during that, during that period of time. And the truth is uh, the wind was blowing in advance of the weather getting really cold. Uh, then there was a period of time when it got very still on Monday and Tuesday, so it wasn't blowing. Uh, and then it began to pick back up. But every resource type failed. We had coal plants that failed. We had gas fire generation that failed. We even had one of our nuclear plants that failed because of a either a broken water line or a heat sensor or something coal related. 
So there was not one particular resource that performed worse than others. None of them performed at 100%. And, and so that obviously precipitated load shed, dramatic load shed from ERCOT to the TDUs like Encore and Centerpoint. And I think they did a remarkable job to keep the system from collapsing. And we've all heard the testimony that they were within minutes of getting into a black start uh, position. We've never done that before. That would have been awful. We don't know how to do it. Barry, let me let me just interrupt you just for one second, because we do have some listeners that are kind of newer to this issue area. And I know a lot of people that lived through it will go, wait a minute, did a remarkable job. Made it. Well, I, I know what you're talking about, which is the entire grid did not go down. Uh, while, while it was unacceptable what happened and nobody would disagree with that, days without power for a number uh, for a lot of people, um, we did not, in fact, lose the entire grid, though when you're talking about Black Start, we, there was a potential for that to have actually happened the night of February 14th, the morning of February 15th. And had that happened, it wouldn't have been 30% of people out for multiple days. It would have been the whole state, the whole all of ERCOT, I should say, out for a period of potentially weeks, maybe even longer so I just want to be clear that that is what you're talking about there to make sure that that eventuality did not happen. Right. Because ERCOT has to balance demand and supply every 60 seconds uh, simultaneously, keeping everything in balance. If one gets out of balance, then they have to dramatically alter the other. And had we lost the grid completely, then we would have had to re-energize it one generation unit at a time until we had the entire, whatever they are, 550 some odd generation units in ERCOT up and running. It's been done on a tabletop, but it's never been done in real life. And, and we didn't have six or seven of the 13 Black Start plants that were, they, they were also frozen. Yeah. Yeah. So they, I think they did a great job keeping the system from completely disintegrating down and us having to be back in the seventh century for weeks, if not months. Having said that, if you lost your power, you were very unhappy. You probably incurred some damage to your property. Unfortunately, there were people who died. So all of that was uh, a very bad consequence. Uh, but I think a couple of things that uh, we learned from that. One is there were, there were two ramifications. There was a reliability ramification, no power. And then there was a financial ramification because the PUC made an executive decision to put prices at $9,000, which was the cap on Monday afternoon, the 15th. The objective, as I can appreciate it, was to get every possible plant that could get online up and running in order to make money and to encourage consumption to drop off it had, if it had not already dropped off. And they left the price at $9,000 through the entire week. I think the fallacy of that is when units are frozen, it doesn't matter what the price opportunity is. If you can't get your unit up and running, then you're not going to make money. And if you're already off the grid, you're already off regardless of what the price is. So we ended up with 
transferring money from one hand to another for that week or that five days. And I've heard, I've seen calculations that and it was anywhere between 40 to $50 billion worth of um, transfer as the price stayed the same. Those that were operating made a lot of money. Those that couldn't operate lost a, a lot of money. And, uh, and so uh, we saw last legislative session conversation and debate about that whether there were attempts to try to resettle the last 30 or so hours of the market when ERCOT had actually stopped shedding load to let those transactions stay in place, which is ultimately what happened. Uh, And of course, Senate bills two and three in particular, which came out of last session in an attempt to avoid this from happening again. Yeah. So, um, what are the things that you think have, have been done well to prevent something like that from happening again in similar weather? And where do you think um, potentially needs some additional focus? Well, let's remember, from my perspective, it was first and foremost a weather event. So the efforts that have happened to weatherize the plants that we have in ERCOT have been a good thing. Um, you would have hoped that many of them would have been weatherized already to begin with going into winter storm, Yuri, because if your plan is up and running, you have a revenue opportunity. If it freezes, you don't. And, and so there was an incentive to be weatherized, but now there's a requirement to be weatherized. And, and that's important because we don't want to have another weather-related event like this. Having on-site storage is, I think, also a plus because in some cases, the problem was an inability to get fuel to your plant, whether it was uh, an inability to get gas delivered or uh, no backup diesel or, or even a coal pile that was frozen. I think taking effort, the efforts that were taken to ensure on-site fuel is is also a very smart idea. Uh, so those were the initial first steps that the commission and the legislature took to try to make the system more weather resistant. And I think those are smart. The second stage, as you know well, is sort of the market redesign element of this. And that's kind of what's uh, happening in real time presently. Got it. Um, and we will... Um We'll talk some more about market redesign before we're done, but I think this is actually a good time. Before we start talking about where the market might go, let's talk about where it's been. And and you obviously were were, were at the center uh, of a lot of that, as you talked about earlier, uh, starting at the PUC in, in 2004, which was an interesting moment in time because uh, we had... Uh, the SB7, as folks that haven't listened to it yet, go back and listen to the podcast with Pat Wood. And we went through a lot of that history of, of the, the initial um, wholesale deregulation in 95, retail in 1999. Um, that, but there was a phase-in period. So retail competition was until 2002. And then you started 2004. 
there was also this kind of transition happening there as well uh, with with price to beat, which was kind of a basically a way to protect consumers from prices to from from going too high. Um, so so I want to talk to you about that. But um, let's let's just talk generally, though, before we get into some of those specifics. 2004, you started the commission and you said that you had been in investment banking. You were you were kind of newer to this. Can you talk for a minute? Just kind of like how how did that come to be? So so uh, it's Governor Rick Perry at that point. How did it come to be that that that? Governor Perry asked you to, to go to the commission. Or is that how it happened at all? Did you ask him? How did yeah, it's happen? an interesting and no, that that's exactly the way it happened. Um, I mean it's a fascinating story. I was uh, back in Houston having left the investment banking world and I got a call from a friend of mine, Kyle Janik, who was a state senator. And he was actually my state senator. I'd known him uh, for a long time. We went to AM together. And he said I was with Governor Perry today, and you're going to be appointed to the Public Utility Commission. And I said, uh, what is, what's a Public Utility Commission? I never heard of it. What do they do? And he said, you know, don't worry about it. You're the right person. Um, they're going to call you to Austin. And uh, and I said, well, I need to talk to my wife. And uh, let me think about it. And go, no, you know, it's, it's done. You're going to be on there. And, uh, and about three <laughs> weeks later, about three weeks later, I'm sworn in. And uh, what had happened, Doug, is the seat had been open since January um, when Becky Klein had decided to run for Congress. That automatically meant she had to leave the PUC. And they were just about to start the stranded cost recovery cases, which was another element of Senate Bill 7 which allowed the formerly regulated TXU and Houston Lighting and Power to get some cost to recover that they said were stranded because of DREG. Those cases were just about to begin and they were looking for someone who had a financial background ah. that could understand all the numbers associated with this. And, and uh, so my, my investment banking experience was, was relevant there. And so the first day I'm on the dais is the first day we start the um, center point. Really, it was the old Houston Lightning and Power stranded cost recovery case where they asked for something like, you know, four and a half billion dollars worth of stranded recovery. And, and we had three or four weeks worth of hearing the testimony and it became a big case and ended up in front of the Supreme Court 10 years later. Uh, so that's how I ended up on the on the commission. Amazing. Um, let's talk about a few things that were going on back then. So, so there was trans transition to competition. I definitely want to talk about market design. I want to talk about some of the things you're doing now with geothermal. So we won't spend a ton of time on this. But can you talk just for a minute or two though about what were some of the big issues at that time that were difficult to deal with? Because again, you it was kind of an interstitial period, right? It was like right. competition had started, but it wasn't quite full yet. So what were you dealing with? at that time? It, in fact, it was a very tenuous time for competition because we were two years into it. Not everyone was convinced that it was a good idea. Uh, and in fact, there were uh, other market participants that thought it was a terrible idea. Uh, consumer groups, for example. Uh, and so as we began to transition the price of natural gas started going up on us, which meant that the price of electricity was going up as well. 
And you mentioned the price to be that allowed retailers like Reliant, for example, to increase their price twice a year in response to rising natural gas prices. And uh, as those prices kept going up, we kept encouraging customers to switch away from the price to beat, go find a better price, go to one of these upstart reps and get a better price point. But many people didn't. And, and so uh, consumers begin to complain about high prices. And uh, in, in the legislative sessions of, of uh, 05 and 07, were very difficult because there were members that were convinced that this was a terrible idea. And, and I was actually worried that we might have to put the whole genie back in Which the bottle Which would have been a complete again. mess because what you were talking about earlier with like selling off of the assets, like a lot of that had already happened and now you're trying to get them back and re-regulate. It would have been very expensive. It would have been, it would have been very difficult and very expensive. But two things happened, I think, that really helped us along the way. One was what happened on the gas side when George Mitchell and others perfected horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. And suddenly we went from being short natural gas in America to being long natural gas in America. And the price of natural gas went from $8 in MMBTU to $2 in MMBTU. And and in a very short period of time, suddenly electricity prices in Texas were very cheap. And they stayed cheap until really a couple of years ago. So that low gas price, and as you know, the way we price power in ERCOT, natural gas is the marginal fuel. So it sets the clearing price for at every interval. That tailwind that we had because of cheap natural gas, you know, maybe saved deregulation. And so that was that was number one. And, and I would say number two was the introduction of more wind into the ERCOT grid. Because in 2005 and six, we were worried that we were overly reliant on natural gas. Natural gas was expensive and that was going to continue to make electricity prices really expensive. Uh, so when we embarked upon the CRES plan at the direction of the legislature, that began to diversify the portfolio and added zero marginal cost win to the energy mix. And there was a study out recently that Josh Rhodes, uh, who interviewed for this podcast a couple of weeks ago, uh, put out recently that I think it was through August, a little over $7 billion in savings to the market from uh, wind. So yeah, I mean, the the, the legacy of Krez is 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 immense. I mean, I I, I want to say I, I heard some stat. I can't remember what it is. A, a very large portion of the transmission build in the United States infrastructure into the power grid has it was in Texas, and it was it was because of that. It's very hard to build transmission. It's one of the biggest problems we have in the U.S. Uh, as far as energy grids overall. Um, that passed in 2005, right? It was, it was, it was Senate bill 20. So they expanded the renewable portfolio standard. They put in place CREZ. Were you, I assume very involved. I assume they were, they were calling you over there all the time to work on that. Or was it more something they handed to you? I was not involved in the formulation of the bill and the passage of it. I wasn't chairman of the commission at the time. But by the time it was handed over to us and we began 
to design the CREZ plan. Uh, I was the chairman, and then we began to select the routes and put it in place. And just think about this. We conducted probably 50 contested routing cases over a period of about six years. Um, and nobody wants transmission lines built through their 100-year-old family farm or across their top of their business. And we got that done in a remarkably fast amount of time. So at the end, over about eight years, 3,600 miles of 345 kV, the most ever built in America in a, in a short amount of time. Uh, and the cost, yes, the cost did go up because the initial cost were straight lines on a map. But when you begin to work with individual landowners to route lines to try to make it as accommodative of them as you can, then it gets longer. And as it gets longer, it, it gets more expensive. So it ended up costing $7 billion. But, but I think almost everyone would agree adding wind and the marginal zero marginal cost associated with that brought down power prices. When the wind is blowing, prices are really, really cheap in ERCOT, that that more than paid for the transmission that we added as part of CREZ. And, and oh, by the way, you know, the CREZ lines are not just for wind. You know, they're open access for any kind of generation resource. And the footnote to that is, as the hydraulic fracturing boom continued migrating its way out to the Permian Basin, those lines that we built out in West Texas really became useful for getting enough electricity down in the Permian to continue to foster the oil and gas development that happens out in that really important region. So they ended up with a dual purpose. Not only do they move wind, but they also move electrons to power the oil and gas space out in the Permian. Before we get to um, uh, current uh, discussions around market design, two other things uh, I want to I want to ask you about. Um, one of those uh, is is retail competition. So you were talking uh, a minute ago about some of the challenges during that transition period. I'm just going to share with you my perspective and I want you to 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 push back, disagree, agree, whatever you like. I think in the early days of retail competition, and and I was a um, didn't, didn't have any gray in the spirit at the at the time, and was a staffer at the legislature. And I remember all the talk about this is going to lead to all kinds of differentiated offerings. There's going to be this is how we're going to get more um, smart energy services. So you were at the at the commission when smart meters were rolled out. We're going to get all kinds of you know demand response programs into the market. There's going to be all these different offerings. But but I th I think my perception is what actually happened was it really became an extremely commodified business. It was all about the commodity. It was all about tenths of a penny of of price. And there wasn't a lot of differentiated services being offered into the market. I think that's starting to change. And I think Tesla setting up a retail electric provider, but not just them, uh, companies like Octopus and Ohm Connect, and I, I could go on coming into the market with, with, you know, in some cases, pretty big balance sheets and offering different. I think retail electricity is really kind of starting to take off in Texas. But my perception is that for a while, 
there really wasn't much differentiation other than on price. Um, I don't know. I, what, what, do you agree, disagree with that? What do you think? Well, I have written and spoken extensively about the benefits of a retail competition. And in the early days, I felt like a, a lone voice in the wilderness, oftentimes. You've got a lot more company now, so that, that must feel good. It feels better. But, you know, the primary problem was that people would not shop. They would not actively go look for a better offering. They would they would stick with their incumbent provider usually on a month-to-month basis or maybe on a one-year contract. And and that's not how you're going to take advantage of retail competition. Retail competition works the best when you actively shop for the kind of product that works the best for you and your family or your business. So if you want 100% renewable product, you can get that. You can't, you could not get that in a non-competitive market. You could only get that with retail choice. If you wanted a month-to-month product, you get that with retail. At one point, we had a product that was indexed to the price of natural gas. And I, frankly, I thought that was a good product because for some people that are sophisticated watchers of the market, they would understand those movements and take advantage of it. You know, I had hoped that we would have real-time time of use pricing. I always wanted to that that to be available as well so that a person, if they had the right kind of feedback mechanism, could get off the grid when prices are high, could consume when prices are low. Um, I also was hopeful that we would see reps that would be the solar rep or they would be the battery rep. So if you sign up with that retail electric provider, they'll they'll give you a battery or they'll put solar panels on your house or they'll come out and do an energy efficiency audit of your property. I think we're seeing some of that, Doug, but I think it took a long time to get there. Yeah. I, I Like I said, I think we're getting there. And I also want to be clear, There, a lot of times people say competition, they're lumping everything together. There's wholesale competition, which I think, I think it would be pretty hard to argue hasn't I'm not sure I've seen any sort of, I've seen credible arguments. I could disagree or agree with methodology or conclusions, but um, on retail that it's, it, it's, it's at least arguable on the wholesale side. It'd be really hard to argue. Um, there, there's been pretty significant benefits. And then, and then I think also for large buyers, retail has been, I mean, you know, th- this wall, this is where Walmart and Amazon and you could, it's a long list come to buy their power because, you know, they want to get their renewal, whether a lot of companies move here because it's cheaper. A lot of them buy their renewables here because it is a market. It is, there is a lot of competition and they get a really good price. Um, I think that's I think right. For the residential and the small commercial, we're starting to see those benefits, but it's anyway, it's, it's, it's a long process. The other thing I want to ask you about about your time at the PUC was energy efficiency. Um, uh, as chair in 2010, um, you led the commission to increase uh, the energy efficiency goals. The 2011 uh, legislature, my understanding of it is basically sort of codified what you did. They, they changed a, a, a metric as to how it was actually measured, but kind of took it sideways. So really, you're responsible for the last increase. I say this as an extremely positive thing, obviously, in energy efficiency. Positive that you did it. 
not real positive. It hasn't been touched in the last uh, 11 or 12 years. Can you talk a little bit about how that came to be and what do you see as the role of energy efficiency on, on the grid today? Yeah, well, I think you and I agree. Most people agree that the avoided consumption is the cheapest form of resource that we have. So how do we put in place uh, the ability of people to consume less, either through energy efficiency, better windows, better insulation, better air conditioning, all those uh, elements of energy efficiency, that's money well spent. And 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 I, as I recall, we were at a place in 2011 where we had embarked upon CREZ, so we were adding wind, we were building transmission, we had a very competitive retail market, but it felt like that energy efficiency was sort of the last piece we needed to continue to empower the consumer to have better control over their electric bill. And, you know, you think about this, PUC commissioners, and this goes to kind of the market design conversation today, they cannot compel anyone to build anything. That's our market. Uh, a, there's a price point and an opportunity to make money, and that's supposed to incent generators to put new steel in the ground. So if all you have as a commissioner is you can try to diversify the portfolio with renewables, you can try to build transmission as a substitute for generation, you can put smart meters in place so that people are more informed about their consumption, which we did. We haven't talked about that, but we had a huge smart meter rollout. Uh, and then you give people tools to consume less or be uh, smarter about their consumption. That's kind of the full suite of tools that we can give to a consumer to try to keep the grid reliable, clean, and cheap. You know, those are the three legs of the stool, reliable, clean, and cheap. But even today, a PUC commissioner cannot tell anyone to go build anything. Yep. So that that statement right there is a really good segue into a lot of these discussions going on right now uh, about market design. Um, there is a lot of desire among a lot of folks, uh, general public somewhat, but I think mostly policymakers about how do we can't we just force something to be built. So that those conversations are going on right now. Over the last 18 months, the sort of um, path we've taken going through all these different um, changes, the, the change to the operating reserve demand curve and those kinds of things through to the proposal for the load serving entity obligation, which seems to not be uh, really much under consideration anymore. Now to this new proposal of performance credit mechanisms. Can you uh, share a little bit of your your thoughts on what's going on right now and, and, and maybe where all this is headed? Yeah, well, the foundation of these ideas is a belief that the current model doesn't work and that it doesn't send the kind of price signals that are needed in order to get the right kind of generation built. Uh, but let's be clear, we operated for almost 20 years under an energy only model that said when prices are high, generators have a revenue opportunity and they should take that revenue opportunity and pour that back into building additional generation. That's the way the market was designed. 
And that's the way it worked until winter storm Uri. So we had a weather event that caught everybody's attention about whether the market is designed properly going forward. And the other element is the only thing in the generation queue at the moment is wind and solar. So I saw a report the other day, Doug, that that by 23, we're supposed to have 40 gigawatts of wind and 40 gigawatts of solar. And and that's those are huge amounts of renewable energy. And well, it's not in storage, Barry, right? That's the other thing in the queue is there's a lot of storage in there. Right yeah, now. about seven or eight gigawatts of storage, mm-hmm. uh, but no new thermal units and no new nuclear units. So if you take, let's take a day that I think we're going to have next week where the wind is blowing, the sun is shining, and it's modest, it's very modest temperature. And so the net load after you subtract wind and solar is going to be about 15,000 megawatts of demand. But we have 5,000 megawatts of nuclear. So suddenly there's 10,000 megawatts that have to be served by coal and gas. If you own a coal or a gas plant, you're not going to make any money that week because you're probably not going to run. So that's why they're not building any more coal or gas. So the question is, how do we get the right balance to have uh, renewable energy, wind and solar, clean, zero marginal cost, but enough dispatchable energy to keep the system reliable? And how do you do that without dramatically increasing prices to consumers? So I think there are a couple of tools that that should be thought about. One is, how can you take advantage of the regulated T&D system, the transmission distribution meter substation system, to try to add reliability to the grid? Uh, one of the ideas is with batteries and storage, which you've already mentioned, and also with some mobile, modest-sized generation units that are placed strategically around the system. So that's one idea that that is fully within the power of the PUC to do that. There may be some clarification about what's a battery, what's a storage, but you can put those elements on the current system that we have. And Barry, those would be those would be owned by the TDU or or owned or competitive or some combination. Well, the mobile gen units were actually authorized last legislative session and uh, both Encore and Centerpoint positioned some of those mobile generation units to get through the winter uh, of this past winter and also through the summer. So those would go into rate regulation and they are part, they become part of the TD, TND system. So that's sort of one idea. Um, you know, the other, a more radical idea is do we actually pay someone, Berkshire Hathaway, NRG, Vistra, to come in and build some power plants and put those in rates? Um, that was talked about last session. Um, I think there's a lot of opposition to that uh, because as you mentioned, large industrial consumers of electricity pay millions and millions of dollars for electricity, and they don't want to have to pay any more for uh, something that in some cases they think like maybe they can do on their own by putting behind the meter generation, backup generation 
HEB does that. Some of the other big consumers do that. So I think that that will be part of the debate there. And then sort of the the nuanced middle ground, I think, is what the commission is trying to do, which is some sort of performance credit mechanism where you find some additional money that is available for dispatchable generation uh, as a result of either a forward capacity market or some kind of retroactive, retrospective performance credit. It's all about trying to find that additional money to to give to a generator to put additional steel in the ground. Yeah, I like to call it a backward capacity market. <laughs> um, but um, so there's there's another idea floating around out there, and then we should that we should I I could talk to you obviously, and I would like to talk to you more about uh, market design, but we should definitely talk about geothermal because I know you're working with this uh, yes. Texas Geothermal Association and want to want to want to talk to you about that too, but. Um, but there is another proposal that has been talked about over the last year and a half. There's there's several other proposals, but one of them is is called dispatchable energy credits. I kind of wonder what you think of this one. So, I know you know the the modeling that E3 did uh, for the for the PUC actually modeled dispatchable energy credits as this like 48 hour product. But the way it was proposed was something with either a five or a 10 minute ramp that could be around for a few hours. But was a it actually was designed off of the renewable portfolio standard, uh, where you would basically say, "Hey, everybody's got to have a certain amount of dispatchable uh, energy, and whenever it's it's used, it actually gets an extra payment, but it's in the market. So that way, you're you're not it's not a TDU that's getting rate regulated returns to put storage out. It's not Berkshire Hathaway or somebody else just being paid." Just to to build something and then to keep it there and 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 not run it. It's actually in the market. It's completely competitive and it only goes to dispatchable sources um, that that are needed in those times of um, peak net load. What have you have you looked at that one? Is that is that interesting at all? I have not looked at it. I mean, it sounds like you're trying to thread the needle by maintaining elements of a market while also finding some additional money that could be available to dispatchable generation. And, and so that's, I think that's a noble concept. Um, one of the comments I heard during one of the hearings that we've had in the last couple of weeks goes to how long will it take to put that in place and how complicated is it to get it done and what degree of market uncertainty is generated during the transition period. I mean, there's a lot of criticism today about the energy only market, but I will say this, when you stick to a market design and you don't change it and you don't mess with it, the investing community has regulatory certainty and they have uh, a clear path to an investment and they can do a model on their return. Um, We need to be careful at this really important point in time right now that any path we embark upon is not too long and not too complicated because that creates market uncertainty and we could actually delay investment unintentionally while these market participants are trying to figure out what this looks like. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think that is a risk with a lot of the different proposals. Is is, is exactly that. It's well so. Ma- so maybe it's a two stage. I'll finish with this, and we'll talk about geothermal. Yeah, 
you know, maybe there's some there's some low hanging fruit to help ensure reliability, whether it's um, it's storage, it's mobile gen sets, it's some other things that uh, can be put in energy place. Efficiency. Quick, energy efficiency. That's right. Yeah. Uh, make sure everybody's got a smart meter. You know, I'm not sure that mm-hmm. every retail consumer, every muni consumer, every co-op consumer has a smart meter. But some of this low hanging fruit, I think, would be a good idea. And then maybe there's a longer plan to transition to a market that finds some additional money for dispatchable because um, when the wind blows and the sun shines, it's great. When it doesn't, it's a problem. And if we get to the point where we have 60, 70% wind penetration, then I think the reliability of the grid, the ability to manage it becomes very challenging. Nobody's ever done that. Now, maybe technologies will come along to allow us to do it, but at this point, nobody's ever done. So this is where we think geothermal energy may have an opportunity. Great segue. So uh, about a year ago, Matt Welch and I, with the help of the Mitchell administration and the University of uh, Texas, stood up the Texas Geothermal Energy Alliance. We now have about two dozen companies that have joined our association from the largest integrated oil and gas companies to service companies like Halliburton, utilities like Centerpoint and small three-person geothermal startups and kind of everybody in between. Uh, and we've, we've outreached to consumer groups, uh, environmental groups. And, and we think that with advances in drilling technology, the fact that we actually have really good geothermal resources in Texas, particularly alongside the Eagleford Shale, and where the price of power is now, which is about double what it was two years ago, um, and the additional focus on reliability, the geothermal, zero carbon, on-off switch, close to the load, not really needing transmission infrastructure to get it to consumers, this may be the right time for it. So we are engaged in public awareness, education, and advocacy on behalf of the geothermal industry. It's it's extremely exciting. It, it is a it is a resource that I've been excited about for a long time. Going back to my earliest days working on energy, you know, there's a great uh, research group up at SMU that was doing research. I think Maria Richards is yes. her name. Going, uh, you know, she's been doing these studies for a long time, and and I do feel like this is this is something whose time has come. How, how far? So so you you got to get down to hot rocks, right? You got to get down to where the rocks are hot enough with 200 degrees Celsius. Or something like that, and that's a good three, four miles down, which is more than even most of the deepest oil and gas drilling. But is your and again, you have this experience from being at the railroad commission. Like, is your and 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 from being a Texgia now and working with these large oil and gas companies, do they feel like they can at this point get down that far to those hot rocks? They can drill to that depth, and and can they do it cost effectively? Or how far away are they from that? We think that there are some locations that we can reach cost effectively now with current drilling techniques and certain technologies. For example, one of the technologies that one of our members has is called a closed loop technology, where you run pipe across hot rock, you push the water through the pipe and it comes up as steam and you drive it through a turbine and make electricity. So there are some opportunities now. There's a pilot project down in South Texas, a couple of megawatts, that we think will be um, effective in the not too distant future. There's a pilot project. It's in McAllen, right? It's in McAllen. It's the city of McAllen. That's right. City of McAllen. 
Uh, there's a pilot project at Ellington Joint Base outside of Houston, where the Department of Defense would like to create a microgrid powered by geothermal energy for national security purposes. Uh, and so as we see more and more of these pilots and experiments being run, the technology gets more and more refined. And we are taking advantage of the oil and gas skill set and technology that we have in Texas already. I mean, think about this, Doug. We have drilled over a million wells in Texas over the last hundred years. So we have an understanding and a body of knowledge about what the world looks like below the surface of the earth that probably no other place in America, if not the world has. So we know the temperatures, we know what the subsurface conditions are. Take that data and instead of finding oil and gas, we wanna find heat. And we use that heat to make steam, to drive a turbine, to make electricity. And if we can perfect that, then and it's almost unlimited. I'm not going to say when it's going to be that point, but the opportunity is boundless and has always been the case with Texas. We've got the resource. I mean, you got to have the resource, first of all, and we have it. We're going to be publishing a report in the next month that's being led by the University of Texas with maps that's going to show everybody where the resource is, the depth of the resource, the economics of the resource, and where we think the near-term opportunity is for geothermal. Yeah, and we will we will have future episodes that will dive deeper into geothermal because there's there's um, a lot more to be said there. I'll ask you one more question about this. We were just talking about flexible and dispatchable resources. My understanding with what you just described with that closed loop technology, you can actually build up the pressure as so you, so you got the the water going down, heating up, coming back up as, as steam, and you can actually build that up and then release it. Either hold it or release it at a different flow rate, depending on what is needed. So when you were just describing, there might be a day where there's just a lot of wind and solar. You might actually let that pressure build up a bit, and then as the sun is going down, you. It act, so in other words, geothermal actually works as a form of storage. So I think this is this is one of the things we have to think about, though, is how do we, for a while, the price is going to be higher just because it's new, and this is just the way learning curves work. Is when you're when you're starting at it, it's going to be more expensive. So I kind of wonder in this whole discussion of dispatchable energy credits and performance credit mechanisms, and is there some way to to make sure that a resource like this that is dispatchable and firm, it actually has both attributes and clean and emission-free, like is there some way that it can um, – uh, you know, get some kind of a, a you know, and I don't think it's a dirty word to say incentive because that's all we're talking about in this whole discussion of dispatchable energy credits and performance credit mechanisms is some kind of incentive for the, for those attributes. Right. Well, I'd say a couple of things. One, if there are performance credits to be given out, we want to make sure geothermal is eligible to receive those because it has the characteristics of dispatchability. Secondly, uh, we think we could play in the ERCOT ancillary and reserve market, that there'd be an opportunity there to be a backstop resource and, and maybe get paid, you know, an above market rate. And I think the other thing is, and this is what we're seeing in McAllen, um, progressive munis and co-ops that really want to push the envelope on zero carbon, no carbon, net zero, ESG, 
here's an opportunity to enter to a long-term power purchase agreement with a geothermal operator. It might be at a, at a slightly above market price, but it may be worth it to them for social policy reasons. Yeah, I think it's also just something the whole state of Texas has an interest in because it really is that signal to the world that our our oil and gas expertise has been huge to the world for that oil and gas that's provided. It's also going to be important to the world to bring additional new and clean energy sources into the world. Um, well, kudos to you for everything you're doing on that. Well, I'm really com- I'm committed to it. And let me leave with one last story. So we were talking to one of our members who's trying to do this out in Nevada, and they told us it would take him, it was taking five to six years to get a drilling permit. And I said, well, I got some bad news for you. It'll take three weeks at the Railroad Commission to get the same permit. That's one of the advantages that we have in Texas is that we will we will cut through the clutter. We'll get a permit. We'll get you operating. The resource may not be as close to the surface as it is in Nevada, but the combination of resource, market, demand, regulatory certainty, market design, consumer de- desire, I think all that comes together for the benefit of geothermal energy. Barry, I always like to ask guests, this will just be the last thing I ask. I like to ask folks, you know, when we look back in 10 years, what's one thing like a, a technology, a product or service, a policy that will be widespread and common use that will surprise people. You're probably going to say geothermal and that's fine. Is there anything else you, any, anything, you could say geothermal, I'll, I'll leave it open. What do you think in 10 years we'll look back will be uh, something that'll surprise us? I do think geothermal will come a long way, but I always say as well, Doug, you know, this computer that we all carry around that we call a phone, that's really a computer. We probably just scratch the surface on our ability to manage our electricity consumption with this computer that we all have. So whatever apps we're going to see that are going to give us real time feedback uh, on our consumption, on our price point. Uh, turning our whole house over to be controlled by our phone, for example, was one of the visions that I had 10 years ago. It hasn't happened so far. I mean, I think we don't know where that's going to be. But if we believe that technology continues to march forward, then there are going to be some energy management uh, applications that we probably can't even imagine today. Demand flexibility for the win. That's a great place to leave it. (laughs) Barry Smitherman, thanks so much for being on the Texas Power Podcast. Thank you, Doug. Thank you very much to Barry Smitherman for being part of the Texas Power Podcast. And thank you for listening. Please be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you listen to your podcast. Please also press the subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. If you have any comments about what we did today or ideas for future podcasts, please hit me up at Twitter at Doug Lewin Energy. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.